Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11 reads, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, we thank you that you have given us this opportunity to come together once again on this Lord's Day. The number of Lord's Days that we have together, Lord, they are are limited. And uh, we're thankful for each one. It's a means of grace that you've given us to remind us of the things that need to form the foundation of the life that we live. The fellowship that we enjoy together the breaking of bread together, the mutual encouragement one to another, the spiritual gifts you've given us that are designed for the edification, the building up of the body, the privilege of worshiping you through sacrament, through the preaching and teaching of your word. Father, we ask you to receive our worship now as we we look at your word together. Father, there's work that you desire to do in our hearts. Your spirit is powerful to work in our hearts through the truth of your word. And we pray, God, that we would that we would experience that spirit power in our lives. He must do in us what we cannot do ourselves. We're blind to it. We're powerless. And so we ask you to strengthen us. Pour your spirit upon us that we might be empowered to live in a way that is pleasing to you. You command us and then you empower us and how grateful we are. You do not leave us alone as orphans. You you sent to us another helper, another of the same kind of helper your spirit to dwell in us, to empower, to sanctify us, to conform us to the image of Christ, to bring your truth powerfully to us. And Father, you have given us this opportunity to gather and to look into your word. 
And we ask you to go before us now. Father, we pray for the speaker that you would keep him from speaking error. And that which is true, that is consistent with with your word. That you would drive home into our hearts. She would do work in, our, in us that only you can do. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. You recall last week we began looking at sort of a mini-series on uh, pride and humility. And uh, we, looked at, we looked at several passages, uh, primarily in the book of Proverbs, that teach us about the sin of pride. <clears throat> there, are, there are six things the Lord hates, yes, seven, that are an abomination to him. And the first sin to lead that list is haughty eyes. Well, that's just another way of saying pride. This idea that we're better than others or that we would look down on others and elevate ourselves, certainly that leads the list. Remember Proverbs 16.5, everyone with a proud heart is detestable to the Lord. Be assured he will not go unpunished. And then you may recall we looked at several characteristics of pride. We're not going to go through those. That's out there available Posted on our website, you can go listen to last week's if you weren't here. <clears throat> our intention this week is to, uh, is to focus on humility. Again, last week was focusing on pride, this week is focusing on humility. <clears throat> and like last week is related to pride, we begin this week with, uh, with a few definitions. A few definitions of humility. Um, Augustine you recall last week, we'll, we'll piggyback, we'll remind you of this uh, statement that, August, that Augustine made when he was asked to define godliness. He said this, in that way, the first part, again, speaking of godliness, in that way, the first part is humility, the second, humility, the third, humility. And this I would continue to repeat as long as you might ask question. Not that there are no other instructions that may be given, but because unless humility precede and accompany and follow every good action of which we perform, being at once the object which we keep before our eyes, the support to which we cling, and the monitor, right, humility, the monitor, by which we are restrained, pride rests, that is, violently takes away, wholly from our hand, any good work for which we are congratulating ourselves. You ever been there? You do a good work, you do something good, you know that's obedient. I just, I just obey. <laughs> I feel pretty good about myself. All right? I just shared the gospel with an unsaved person. And then we kind of self-congratulate. I, I, uh, I spoke truth and I obeyed. And instead of, being, instead of being impatient with my wife, I was very patient with her there. And we can 
do something good and then be self-congratulatory. And Augustine is put, putting his hand on that and he's saying, and, and he's saying no. Pride, humility rests, violently wrestles pride out of us, wholly from our hand. Even when we do good work, we congratulate ourselves. Humility has to rest pride out. All other vices are to be apprehended when we are doing wrong. That is, um, you, you get a perception that you're doing wrong, right? That's his idea. But pride, listen to this, but pride is to be feared when we do right actions, lest those things which are done in a praiseworthy manner be spoiled by the desire for praise of self. That's how insidious pride is. Stuart Scott, humility is the mindset of Christ himself. It's a, it's a servant's mindset that focuses on God and others in the pursuit of the recognition and the exaltation of God, the desire to please God and glorify God in all things and by all things he has given. That's helpful. I think that's a helpful definition of humility. Um, I think we looked at these passages last week from the standpoint of pride. I'd like to look at them from the standpoint of humility. Quickly, go over to Isaiah 57. Isaiah 57, verse 15. Isaiah 57, 15. For thus says the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, I dwell on a high and holy place. All right, hang on. What does that mean? God identifies himself as the high exalted one the transcendent God who, who is enthroned above all things, who lives forever. He is the eternal one. His name is holy. So when you read your Bible, you start coming into contact with God, you come into contact with a being who is the transcendent, majestic God who is above all things, and he is the eternal God Without beginning or end, he is the holy God, which means he is morally perfect, pure. And that holiness is an expression of his transcendent existence, which means he's far above us and he's wholly other than us. If you want to know what I believe to be the greatest sin in evangelicalism today, it's the sin of bringing God down and making him familiar to us. It's bringing him down to us. He is is other than us. He is transcendent, majestic, holy. There is the creator and there is the created. And the God with whom we have to do is the eternal, exalted God. A.W. Tozer said it this way, An earthworm has more in common with an angelic being 
than we have with God. Because God fits into a category all by himself. God alone is God, and all that is outside of that is not God. Everything outside of that is created matter and created beings. So, beloved, the God with whom we have to do, revealed in the scripture, is the eternal, transcendent, exalted God who is completely, wholly other than us. That's how Isaiah describes him in Isaiah 57. Notice again, Isaiah 57, God says, I dwell on a high and holy place. And then this, watch, and also with the contrite and lowly of spirit. In order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. So this high, holy, majestic God, Isaiah says, also dwells with the humble, with those who are lowly, with those who mourn over their sin. Beloved, if you want God to dwell with you, if you want God to dwell with you, then, then you must be humble. You must be contrite in heart. That's Isaiah 57. 15. Turn over, to, turn over to Isaiah 66 quickly. Isaiah 66, verse 1. <clears throat> For thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where then is a house you could build for me and where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all these things, thus all these things came into being, declares the Lord. But to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite in spirit, and who trembles at my word. Now this is really, of course, saying virtually the same thing as Isaiah 57, only with slightly different words. Heaven is my throne, and the earth, well, the earth is like a little footstool. It's like a little footstool. And so, and so, Isaiah, so God says to Isaiah, how, how are you supposed to build with your puny little hands How are you supposed to build a house for me to dwell in? You remember Solomon understood this when when Solomon was building the temple in 1 Kings um, and he is dedicating the temple. Of course, the temple was the dwelling place of God and Solomon recognized that no one could build a house for God because the heavens of heavens cannot contain him, much less this puny little house that we're building with our puny little hands. God's throne is an eternal throne, and his throne is the entire universe, with earth just as footstool. He's the creator of all things. And then God says to Isaiah, to this one I will look. That is, to this one I will look with grace and favor. To him who is humble, that is, bowed down and contrite in spirit and who trembles at my word. Isn't that great? 
trembles at God's word, the Bible. We, we recognize sola scriptura, that the Bible is the word of God. You open the Bible, you begin reading it, you hear the voice of God. You listen to the Bible preached, you're hearing the voice of God. God speaks to us through his word. This is God's revelation. The question might be asked, how many of us tremble at it? How many of us tremble at the word of God? Most people go to church to get something out of it, right? I hope that the preacher will have something to say that's relevant, help, help me to live my life. And so it's all just selfishly wanting to get, instead of listening to the word of God and, and recognizing this is the voice of the almighty, eternal, transcendent God, universe is his throne and the earth is his footstool, and, um, and, and we hear his word and we tremble. The preaching of the word of God is not to put on display the oratory gifts of a speaker. The word has to do with eternal matters, matters of of heaven and hell, matters of life and death, faith and unbelief, righteousness and wickedness. And there's nothing in between. This is sobering truth. And how dare we sleep at God's word? when we should be trembling. We should be trembling. Our evangelical communities, our evangelical churches, beloved, have forgotten how to tremble at the word of God. They have forgotten whose word it is. And woe be to preachers who preach without any seriousness or urgency. They should quit. They should do us all a favor and quit and go do something else. They claim to open their mouths on behalf of the Holy One of Israel and all they have is anecdotes and creative stories and they've replaced the word of God with their own words. And so the one that God looks to with favor is the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at God's word. Just to be reminded, pulling ourselves into the New Testament, not to look these up, but you can just write the references if you'd like, uh, or just be reminded. Here's Paul, Ephesians. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called. Chapter 4, verse 1. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You want to walk worthy of the calling with which you've been called? The soil, the foundation, is humility. With all humility and gentleness. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. As the chosen of God, we are to clothe ourselves with compassion and humility. The picture is putting on a garment. You put on humility like a garment. James 4. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then the passage that sprang, that sort of served as a springboard into this mini-series. 1 Peter chapter 5. 
God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And I will submit to you that as long as these kind of pastors are in the Bible, we better set our minds in terms of understanding what it means to be humble. Hardly any other topic is more important. God is actually opposed to the proud, gives grace to the humble, and as long as that is true, we better get a handle on what it means to be humble. The best place to get a handle on this is, of course, looking to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember what Jesus says, Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in spirit. The Lord Jesus, the Lord Jesus, God of very God, in his incarnation, coming down among us, in his person, he is the high and exalted one of Isaiah 57. He is the one who, is, who has the universe as his throne, the earth as his footstool. He is that one, but in his, in his humanity is willing to step down into, into our world and in that demonstrates humility. Every one of us in this room has a cause, every cause in the world to be humble Jesus willingly took upon himself that place of humility in his incarnation, stepping down to us. The transcendent, eternal God becomes incarnate and dwells with us. That's humility. And he did this not for himself, but for us. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Matt read it. Let's take a look. Go over there. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. What a passage. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Is this hurt yet? I mean, these these words strike at our heart. Do nothing from emptiness, selfishness, empty conceit. I think if we were honest, we'd probably have to admit that most everything we do is selfish and is motivated by Selfish conceit. But with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. How are you doing with that one? Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, now watch, which was also in Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, 
taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For this reason also, God highly exalted him, bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Beloved, there has been a lot of ink spilled by scholars and commentators throughout church history trying to explain this passage. We are told that the humble think of others as more important than themselves. They look not after their own personal interests, but for the interests of others. And we are told to have this same mind, which was also in Christ Jesus. In other words, Jesus did what we're called to do. He demonstrated it. He, dem- he, he was the example of what this looks like. who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be, and the idea is like forcibly retained, but he humbled himself by becoming a servant, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus is the demonstration of what humility looks like. Be like him. Write this great, this great passage dealing with Christology, deep truths about the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that that deep theology is couched in this very practical do nothing from emptiness or selfish conceit. With humility of mind, regard others as more important than yourself. Look at Jesus. That's what he did. So, beloved, throughout Scripture, this exhortation to humility is really just everywhere. So for our remaining time, we just want to kind of do what we did last week with the characteristics of pride. I want to, I want to roll out for you a, a few characteristics of humility, right? To help, us, to help us get a handle on it, try to think rightly and clearly and biblically about what humility is. And it's so important. First of all, humility has an acute awareness of God's greatness and goodness. Humility starts with an acute awareness of God's greatness and his goodness. Who he is. Who he is in his holiness and majesty. Listen, only as we understand who he is will we understand who we are. And when we understand who he is and who we are, There's no place in that understanding for pride. It's gone. The Bible is just vital for us to to read it, to be a student of it, to study it, to pour over it, to hear it taught, to memorize it. Because Because it's here we learn about who God is. 
and who we are. Um, and, and apart from that, apart from that, there are also other helpful resources. And I suggested this on Tuesday night, so I'll do it again. Uh, Jai Packer wrote a great book, Knowing God. Knowing God. You ought to read that book. You ought to read it once a year. Knowing God. Tremendously important book. This will help you. This will help you to know who God is so you can know who you are. Take away the pride then. Uh, A.W. Pink, The Attributes of God, Sovereignty of God, that'll help you down the road. Stephen Charnuk as well, Attributes of God. It's a lot. There's a lot out there. These are, I think, really helpful resources. And as you get to know who God is, and you, come, and you become more and more aware that then your experience is going to be kind of like the experience that we saw Tuesday night with Isaiah in chapter 6, right? When you come, to, you come into contact with this God, your, your response, beloved, will not be pride. It'll be the opposite. You will say, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips. And I live amongst the people with unclean lips. I have seen the Lord of hosts, the King of glory. The reason that the evangelical church is filled with pride is because we haven't seen the God that Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. We don't know this God. We have a God of our own making, a God of our own imagination. Who was it that said, was it Augustine who said, um, God created us in his image and then we returned the favor? We've created a God in our image. Bears no resemblance at all to the transcendent, majestic God of Scripture. There is no way that we can understand the character of God and His holiness, power, beauty, and perfection and be proud. By the way, this great God holds our lives in His hands. He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. The very air we breathe right now, the bodily functions that are working, lungs that are breathing in and out, a heart that that beats. It's beating and we're breathing only because God is being gracious to us, extending favor to us and allowing it. And he doesn't owe us one more. As we grow in our understanding of this God, we will grow in our, in our understanding that it's he who is at the center of the universe, not us. Secondly, the humble are clear, uh, are, are, um, I'm sorry, the humble are clearly aware of their sin and failures. If you want to be humble, if you want to grow in humility, then you must be aware of your sins and failures. The humble... The humble know and realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They own that. They, they put themselves readily in that category. I have sinned and I have fallen short of God's glory. I recognize that I am a sinful person. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Do you know your heart? Do you know that you're sinful? God is holy. You have You have offended against his holiness by your sin? Have you confessed that? Have you repented of your sin? Have you sought forgiveness from God? This is what the humble do. 
And, and if you've sought forgiveness from God, how about from others? Oftentimes we can think that we're doing well because we come before God and we confess our sins seeking forgiveness while we, uh, while, while we, are, we remain at odds with, with other people, that we're unreconciled with other people. The humble readily go to other people. The humble will look at another person face to face, eyeball to eyeball, and, and, and willingly, readily, easily say the words, I was wrong. Please forgive me. If those words don't easily come out of your mouth, you are proud. Recognize it. The arrogant do not bear the fruit of good, godly apologies. They're the fonds of wrong. Can't even say it. The other fruit? The other fruit is a willingness to forgive those who offend. When someone comes seeking forgiveness from you, do you humbly, readily, easily grant forgiveness knowing how much God has forgiven you? Do you do that? Don't don't you know people like this? You can apologize, you can seek forgiveness, and they can say, okay, everything's fine. And then they secretly think, um, well, you know, I'm not really sure if they're sincere. I'm not really sure that they really mean it. I'm going to make them grovel. I'm going to get some more pounds of flesh off of them. Because, after all, this is the third time they've done it. And I, and I don't really think that they are sincere. Let me ask you, if you ask God for forgiveness for sins that you've committed more than once, twice, three times, how about 20,000 times? Here's what, God doesn't say this to you. God doesn't say, you know, we got this 70 times 7 thing going on. Do your math. That's 490. You just did it 491. You're done. Doesn't say that. It's not the way, that's not the way that works. Paul tells us to be kind, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Listen, the point is that the humble person is quick to ask for forgiveness and quick to forgive. And the humble are acutely aware of their own sinfulness. Third, Humility is being open to correction and instruction. If this doesn't hurt yet, it'll probably hurt now. This is really the mark of wisdom in the Proverbs. You read Proverbs and you get this as the mark of wisdom. Who is it that receives correction? In Proverbs, it's not the proud. It's not the proud because the proud think that they're better than other people. The proud think that they are smarter than other people particularly the person who's trying to correct them. Who are you to try to correct me? I know more than you do. I'm better than you are. 
Listen, it's the humble person who, when they're corrected and rebuked, receive it. How do you receive that? Somebody corrects you. Somebody rebukes you. Somebody wants to give you uh, constructive criticism. I was talking to a brother last night on the phone, and I remember a few years back, there was somebody who was sitting in my living room giving him some strong corrective rebuke. It was how he was raising his kids. And I told him on the phone last night, I was thinking about this message, I told him on the phone, I, I don't think I could have received that like you did. You, were, you just listened. It was graciously received. Jesse's nodding his head because he was there. Uh, he, he, you were just able to receive that. And it was such a testimony to me. It's humility. Don't you want to be like that? Somebody comes to you out of love and they have, they have a... It takes courage, by the way, to go to people that you love and say hard things to because you care about them and love them. How do you receive it? You need to ask yourself that because how well you receive instruction and correction from others, that is a barometer of pride or humility. Next, humility rejoices in the blessing and, and, and success of others. This is, this is hard as well. Um, it's the proud who get upset. It's the proud who get angry at the success or the promotion of people around them. The humble, they're able to rejoice with those who rejoice. Again, it's a great barometer of how well we're doing in this area. Here's Jonathan Edwards, the most famous preacher in the New England colonies, he goes on a preaching tour, and while he's away, um, George Whitfield steps in and fills his pulpit. That's not bad. You like to be alive in those days and have Edwards as your as your weekly pastor. He goes on vacation, and here comes George Whitfield in to fill the pulpit. Well, here comes Whitfield, um, and Edwards as he's as he's traveling. Uh, on this preaching tour, Edwards writes home to his wife and asks how things are going under Whitfield's ministry. And Sarah Edwards responds and says this, My dear husband, we are experiencing the most incredible single blessing of Almighty God under Mr. Whitfield's preaching. People are getting converted God is moving. I've been around preachers long enough to know how most would respond to that. Many in Edward's position would have thought, what? What? I've been faithfully preaching those people for years. No results. I can't believe somebody's coming in and now... Uh, reaping the fruit of what I've been trying to do. You know, I mean, they, get, they can get that way. Preachers are funny that way. Edwards writes back to his wife, and he says this, I rejoice to hear of God's hand moving in my absence. Wonderful. Humility rejoices when God blesses. 
and causes others to succeed. Next, humility serves joyfully without the need of being noticed. If pride demands recognition, humility says, I'm happy serving behind the scenes. How do we talk about this subject without being reminded once again of the reality as Jesus and his disciples were eating the Last Supper, that Jesus gets up and he girds himself about with a towel and he goes about doing the work of the servant, washing the feet of each of his disciples. And then he says, amongst other things, he and Peter had a very interesting interaction at that moment, but, um, but he says, as I've done what? As I've done to you, so you do to one another. I personally am thankful for being involved in a church that have so many that exhibit this kind of humility. You do what you do. You don't need recognition for doing it. You do it as unto the Lord. Um, and we ought to remember uh, John the Baptist's ministry. Remember when they were trying to pit John against Jesus and so many more are now going to Jesus? And what did John say? I must decrease. He must, he must increase. Tens of thousands were coming to hear George Whitfield preach and Whitfield said in response, may the name of Whitfield perish May the name and praise of Jesus Christ endure forever. Next, humility would rather be wronged than to bring division to the body of Christ. Humility would rather be wronged than bring division to the body of Christ. Don't misunderstand, I'm not saying that in the church we should tolerate grievous sin. But I am saying that humility has the ability to say, I would rather be wrong. I would rather be wronged than to create controversy. You remember the proud Corinthians? We identified the Corinthians last week. Not, the big problem wasn't divisions. The big problem was pride. And divisions were coming as a result of their pride. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. I'm of Cephas. I'm of Christ. Pride. Um, remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they were actually taking each other to court. Before unbelieving judges. And Paul says, why not rather be wronged? Wouldn't you rather be wronged than to do this? Don't you have confidence in the God who judges and does all things well? And who knows all things and sees all things and examines the motives of men's hearts? Wouldn't you rather, wouldn't you rather just be wronged? Live in confidence and trust in God? Why not just, rather for the sake of peace and unity, be wronged? You go around making a big stink. You force people into taking sides. Humility says, it's okay. It's okay to be wronged. I commit my cause to the Lord, and and that's enough for me. Talk about something that goes against the grain of sinful, fallen human nature. This is a good barometer of humility. And finally, humility loves free and sovereign grace. Humility, remember last week I said pride hates these banners? They kind of at least secretly hate them because they want to bring something to the table. They, don't, they want Jesus, they want faith, they want grace, but not alone. Grace is good 
faith is good, but I, I know that I know that I have to bring something. I know I have to contribute something. Humility loves the truth that our salvation is based solely on God's free choice, that it wasn't dependent upon me or anything that God saw in me. It was completely based upon God's grace and God's grace alone. The debates that you will enter into with Arminians have foundationally their roots in this soil. Free will, libertarianism, free willism, Arminianism, they argue passionately against these banners because they want their part. Humility just says at the end of the day, God, all I brought to this was my sin. All I did was stand still and watch the salvation of the Lord. And to God alone, to God alone, be the glory. Humility just says, it's by his doing that I'm in Christ Jesus. How many among you are wise, mighty, noble? God has chosen the the. God has chosen the foolish things to to shame and to confound the wise, the the weak things, the weak people. So that at the end of the day, God gets all the glory. There's no ground for boasting. No ground for boasting. I don't need a fraction of the percentage attributed to me. Because I, at the end of the day, think I'm good enough or smart enough. So for us... The humble, those who are seeking to be humble, we cling to nothing but the cross of Jesus. We, we freely, willingly, joyfully sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. We love Romans nine sixteen. So then it does not depend on man who wills or man who runs but on God who has mercy. Not one of us came into this world with a humble spirit. Right? We don't look at a baby. We're going to baptize Tyndall in a minute. We're not going to look at Tyndall and say, oh, what a humble baby. We don't come in humble. We need the grace of God. We need the grace of God to search us and, and to try our hearts and see if there are any if there be any wicked way in us, we need the spirit to help us become truly the humble servants that God has called us to be in Christ. And however this lands on you, whatever you do with it, this whole thing that we've done the last two weeks is motivated by one small verse. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you, casting all your cares upon him, because he cares for you. Father, we ask you to help us. We need your spirit. We need your spirit to work in us, to make us the kind of people you've called us to be. As those who are in union with Christ, that we would walk in a manner worthy of of the calling with which we've been called. 
that by the power of the Spirit, we would clothe ourselves with humility. Forgive us. God, forgive us for the pride in our hearts. It's there. It's in every one of us. It's insidious. It's the foundation upon which the entire building of sin is built. Help us to recognize it. Lord, hopefully some of these principles that manifest true humility would be, we'd be mindful of them as we are being corrected by others. As someone we love comes alongside and reproves us for sin they see in our lives or weaknesses they see, Father, help us to humbly receive that. Help us to be willingly wronged. Father, we just be willingly wronged. People would wrong us. We would say that's okay. Better to be wronged than to bring division to the body of Christ. That we would do nothing from emptiness or selfish conceit, but with humility of mind, regarding others as more important than ourselves. That we would have this mind that was also in Christ Jesus. Father, help us to follow Christ's example just picking up the towel, wrapping ourselves with it, and going about washing the feet of others, following the example of our Savior. Father, forgive us where we fail. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.